Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. your camera so I can see more books. I think some of my books might be in range now. Right, right. Um, I think over, oh, you're just on the other side of the Python book. You haven't oh, quite graduated to in the view yet. <laughs> Tom puts all these books out and then he doesn't actually put any of my books out, Like, which is like, I don't know what's up with that. There's a statement in there someplace and I'm not sure what the statement is. And today... Yeah, we have Chris Romeo from Fuquay, right? Still, or are you still in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina, the metropolis? Yeah, it's a big metropolis. It's a lot bigger than it was than when you moved there. I mean, I know it was much bigger when I moved there than when I well when I moved out than when I moved there, and now I'm in Knoxville and I'm back in this small town again. But I mean, it's not that small. <laughs> well, I'm just you know going back to Tom's books. I think I see TCP/IP Illustrated Volume One and Two. Yes. And Is three. that the red? You do. Yeah. There's a three? Wait, they uh-huh. come up with a three? Hold on. Stop the presses. <laughs> yep. How it's old is stuff. volume three? I don't know. Oh, he's got to go look what year it was. That's, uh, that's crazy. It's pretty old. I don't think any of this is very new. Yeah, they're all at least 20 years old. I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, when I get my, when the new CC, CCST book comes out, you really need to put it up as a, like, print out a big copy of the cover and put it behind you there you go yeah (laughs) since i since i actually wrote another book which is crazy man crazy so is that i heard this yeah it's all i just i heard you get rich off from writing all these books so (laughs) it's the it's the you know russ is now part of the jet setter group he's like got the private jet pulling out like oh there goes russ (laughs) i wish that's crazy so let's start here. I mean, we've started talking a little bit about security and how people in security don't think. And I think that's a really fascinating place to start because I don't think it's just security. I think it's I think it's worse in security than other areas, but I think it's all across IT now. And I think it's I have my own personal opinion about why this is, but explain it a little bit, Chris, before I start. Yeah, so I don't know if I'd go as far as I say people in security don't think. I would say <laughs> yeah. that's a bit of a that's a bit of a broad statement you're making there. Um, my my thought my my what, what I've noticed in our industry here over the last uh, I don't know five ten years it just seems like people are more ingrained with the status quo. Yeah. They're just they're not and when I say they're not thinking they're not they're they're, th- they're answering questions with this is how we've done it this is the thing this tool this technology mm-hmm. you have to have it well, why do you have to have it well I don't really know. Because people say you have to have it. Like I, I'm seeing this world where we're just not people just aren't thinking. They're not, they're not applying critical thinking to the decisions that they're making. And they're just, they're just continuing down a path that others have have laid before them. And it, it that was a, a successful strategy for a number of years. But it's 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 causing people to do things and continue on a path versus looking and saying, how do I step back? How do I evaluate what I'm doing, where I'm going? and potentially do something different outside of the norm. Right. Well, but people don't want to do things outside the norm. I think there's multiple things. Now, part of this is going to be cultural to me. Part of it is we just live in a risk-averse culture now 
we all do exactly the same thing and say we're all we're all taking risk oh we're all going to go fly an airplane but everybody does it so like it's not even a risk anymore right we all do the same things and we think they're all really risky but they're really not and, and everybody walks in lockstep now what they believe what they do everything is all lockstep and i think that's part of it i think another part of it is is just flat out risk aversion like people are so scared of you know, when you hear about a breach, like I, I get RSS feeds from all over the place and um, there's at least a major breach every other day at this point that I mean, and I mean 100,000 records or more. And I don't even know they report 100,000 records anymore. Nowadays, they only report things that are in the millions, it feels like. And it's like everything is a million records. And there's all these there's all these million and two million record breaches every week or whatever. And people, there's either two ways of handling that. The first is, I'm going to do better. And the other is, I'm going to get really scared and I'm going to go hide behind best common practices so I don't have to fight with this. So it's not my fault. And I feel like we fall a lot into the, it's not my fault now way of thinking. I don't know. That just seems to be Yeah, I mean, thing. I've been in cybersecurity for 26 years at this point. I don't even pay attention to data breaches anymore. I, I just don't. There's, I mean, I did in the olden days and I, I, I once in a while these days, I'll check Verizon's data breach uh, investigation report just to see what the trends and things. And I like to see, I like to look at that average number that people are spending for a breach and cost per record and stuff like that, just because it's fun to look at how it's trended over time. But I don't even pay attention to to breaches anymore. And I think most of our most people in our culture don't either. Like we've become numb to this idea of a data breach. Like I remember, you, I mean, you guys will remember back, Tom. You in the in the days where you'd get that phone call, it's like, oh no, my credit card's been compromised. Uh, it's in a data breach. Oh, my life is over. Let me get a police report. Like you have to file a police report in those days. Right. That's it's that we're so past that though. Yeah, yeah. Now nowadays it's just did somebody make a fraudulent charge on your card? Replace your card. And, in the meantime, and they've already got no, a card on the way. They're already sending you a new card. Yeah, exactly. that. Like they don't even, it's it's all AI driven. They're like, uh, we didn't think you really wanted tickets to Bora Bora, wherever that is. <laughs> and so we just went ahead and blocked it. We're just confirming you're not in, in fact planning a vacation there. Nope. Okay, good to go. But like it's, it's so automated in part, you know, security, that's an area where security has really made a lot of steps forward. Like gone, we've gone from having to go file a police report where the cops were like, who told you to come here and file a police report? <laughs> well, the yeah. card company said, if I don't file a police report, that I'm not going to get the money back to now there's an AI system that just zaps the transaction, zaps a few of them in a row and says, oh, card compromise, file, send new card to Russ. And it's already in the mail to you before you yeah. even know what happened. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I do think I think, yeah, that I do think that we've gotten to the point where we are so risk averse and we're so concerned. And maybe that's a part of it too, is that we are, the tool will take care of us. The AI will take care of us, whatever it is. I don't need to think any longer because why would I? Like there's somebody else there out there doing it, developing a tool for it for me. Um, and, and I think this is also cultural, by the way, too. I think, you know, math. We don't learn math anymore because why would we? Uh, you know, there's calculators that do that stuff. <laughs> I don't need to do it. So, I mean, there there are people who say that, who cares? There's no consequences to security breaches anyway. It's not like I'm going to get sued. It's not like my customers are going to stop buying my service. Who cares? So what, I, and I, I don't personally adopt that. 
uh, philosophy, but what is the danger in sort of being coming mm. numb to everything? The uh, well, the, there's been a couple of events in the news in the last year. There was the CISO from Uber who was uh, had, had charges brought up against him, and uh, there was one the Solar Winds CISO is at oh, the yeah. SEC's filed against the CISO from Solar Winds saying that uh, the CISO basically twisted the truth when it came to their security precautions and whatnot, and so. That, sure, that we might have been talking about kind of the individual consumer, but the stakes are rising inside of organizations. I wouldn't take a CISO job now. You could you could pay me ten million dollars a year, and I wouldn't take a CISO job right now. Like because of the 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 fact, like they're they're now there is a we've entered a world where they're liable. They're for criminal charges. Yeah, not, and it could not be just money. That it's not like the insurance company is going to pay it. No, it's like you go to jail. <laughs> yeah, this is this is get you know go to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect two hundred dollars. Yeah, and this is a. I mean, and until this kind of works itself out, and it, there's a lot of unknowns right now as far as what this means. But I also know there's a lot of CISOs that are kind of like maybe questioning what they do for a living, given that it's a terrible job, like from a burnout perspective and you're on 24, seven, 365. Like there, there is, there is no incident that happens that you're not at least briefed or entering the fray of. And so it's a, it's a difficult job. It's not something that that's, it's not like it's an easy job and, and they used to be compensated appropriately, but now you add this new edge of liability and potentially criminal charges and it might be that I'm facing criminal charges, even though I didn't want to do the thing that we did or that we didn't do. Yeah. Like I said, we had to do it. Everybody else said no. And now I'm going to jail. No, forget that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That is, that is really bad. Yeah. So things are kind of on autopilot, which is, which is a bad thing. And one of the things we're on autopilot about is shift left. <laughs> Only the audience could see me now. There's smoke coming out of my ears. <laughs> Shift left. I mean, I, I still put it in my presentations. Um, I mean, to some degree, I'm always talking about how you should really be thinking. And I, I'll give you a perfect example. And I get, I get slammed for this all the time. Okay. In my opinion, if you're designing a data center fabric today, you should be running two routing protocols. There should be a distinct underlay and a distinct overlay. And I consider this to be a security thing. This is not just a simplicity thing. All right. There is simplicity in it. Other things and people complain. Oh, I have no two protocols. How many times have I now heard? I am my, my knock only knows BGB. They don't know anything else. But it's also a security thing. Because if you think about it, if somebody owns one of your hosts and your underlay runs all the way to the host, your entire data center is gone. Hmm. Because so is this? Do you mean like a control plane, data plane? Like yes, exactly. concept of the days right, of like old. If you're, if you're running BGP all the way to your host, and somebody takes over one of your host, and can gain access to BGP on your host, and that BGP is also your underlay protocol. It's giving you basic reachability to all the devices in your in your data center fabric. You are totally screwed. They can take your whole data center down. And there mm -hmm. is freaking nothing you can do about it. 
I mean, I mean, this is the, we, we used to design around this in the nineties with control networks. Exactly. Like that was a common, that was like, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if you guys knew this, but I worked at Exodus communications, not in the routing side, not like with all, all the brilliant networking minds such as yourselves, but um, I was on the security team there and uh, that's where I first experienced control networks though, because for that exact purpose, I mean, the Exodus data centers were the wild west of wild wests. Like yeah. there was <laughs> attacks all day i mean everybody was getting attacked everywhere at that yeah. point but but we had that control network structure so that we could at least administer like a security device that we were placing into someone's environment we could we had a control network channel to it so we didn't have to trust their network that might have been getting blasted by something else to run the security infrastructure yeah well that's the same thing with the data center fabric you should not be running your underlay to the host the underlay should only run to your routers and it should provide basic connectivity regardless of what the overlay protocol is doing. I don't care what BGP is doing. I should be able to reach my top of rack switches with my underlay protocol, and I don't care what BGP is doing, what EVPNs, I don't care. It, I either need an out-of-band network or I need some way of getting to those devices. This is a security thing to me, and this is a shift left. This is where I use the idea of shift left. I don't want to design the network so that it's hard to put security in. I want to think about like, what does what does it mean to build a secure network? Do I need out of band management? Does that need to be built in from ground from the ground up? Do I need two protocols instead of one? Do I need to encrypt my control plane because I just should? Um, you know those kinds of things. Um, so what? So so. But I understand we ever use the term. So talk to us about shift left. Son. Yeah. Let me let me kind of let me kind of set the stage here a little bit. So. At its core, I'm not, I don't disagree with the idea of shift left, right? We do want to consider security and design and things as early in the process of creating something as possible. And I don't care what anybody says, doesn't matter what you're building, you have a process that you're going to go through. Nobody just imagines work to be done and starts coding. Like you're pulling a, you're pulling a user story or a ticket or some, a requirement, something that you're, is feeding into what you're doing, right? So, so and, many, so many things busted right in there. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> but the, but the, the, the idea of shift left is saying, okay, let's consider security and privacy as early in that process as possible, right? And so with the core idea of shift left, I don't I don't have a problem with this idea because Joe Jarzenbeck was at DHS in the late 90s and Joe launched this program called Build Security In. Guess what Build Security In was calling for? Starting early in the development lifecycle, adding security controls, thinking about security before you start building something. So this, so shift left is not a novel concept, and it isn't even a security concept. I looked it up. It was the guy. It was a program uh, project manager guy that that first started using the term. Now I'm shaking my fist at his his usage of this term, but his it was more from a project management kind of flow. And so what I guess the bone that I have to pick is vendors have taken this idea of shifted shift left and they have created some of the most crazy statements with it they and, and i and I've, I've got a few of them I'll, I'll be happy to share a few i have my, my i'll share my favorite one but i want to get okay. your reaction because you said that some things you, I, things were already breaking down in your head russ so i want to want to unplug that okay so so let's so let's think about this first of all vendors and marketing right and even two weeks ago i saw an article talking about how SD-WAN doesn't solve everything. Sometimes you need MPLS. And like, you still don't understand MPLS is not a service. MPLS is a 
is a transport protocol that has nothing to do with services. But somebody in marketing land somewhere decided to call their MPLS-based service MPLS and like <laughs> totally screwed up the entire world. So like, yeah, the whole shift lift thing in marketing is is always a problem. But yeah, I mean, and I, I would think, well, I also when I think of shift lift, I don't think just think of security and privacy. I also think of life cycle. Have yeah. I designed the product or the the, pro, the system to be able to support a rational life cycle? And like, even if your life cycle is, I'm building a data center and I don't ever intend to replace anything in it. I'm going to build a new data center in five years in a different in a different facility, and I'm just going to shift all my stuff over and rip the old one out. That's still a life cycle. I, I may not agree with it. I may think it's a crazy life cycle, but you at least have some planning, right? You're at least mm -hmm. thinking about something. We don't do any of that stuff today, man. We, we have no life cycle in our world. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, and that's, I mean, I certainly realize like this idea of shift left, like I said, it's not a security term. It's this idea of thinking about something earlier in the process of building so that you don't end up having to do a whole bunch of rework. And we could apply that. I mean, there's you could apply shift left to building a house. Like if we don't figure out some core things early in the process with engineering, when we go to, to walk into the house and the first floor falls into the basement, we're going to have to do a rework as a result of that because we didn't shift our engineering thinking left. And so, yeah, like I said, I don't have a problem with the idea. The idea is solid of, of and it's it's logical to say if we don't wait to the last minute. It's amazing what we could identify with as far as problems with anything that we can fix earlier. My bone to pick is really with how the vendors and the marketing have just completely taken this thing and just really made it into something that's a laughing stock. So let's let's hear this uh, this statement you have. Sounds like you've okay. got a favorite. So um, I'm not going to disclose who it is, okay? But certainly people can Google it. I'm sure right away. But I'm not going to. I'm not. I'm not talking about any vendors here. But I'm going to repeat their slogan. It's here. Here is what I got from the front page of their website. Make shift happen. Shift everywhere with the leading cloud native AppSec platform. <laughs> let, let the record show that the hosts of the show are laughing uncontrollably and are unable to talk almost. Shift everywhere. <laughs> Make it's a big old pile of shift. <laughs> That's exactly. But I mean, and first of all, it's like a double entendre or whatever, like make shift happen. Like they're right. I'm sorry. I run companies. I'm never going to take a slogan that had, that I could interpret a swear word into it. Like, and you might, you might call me a fuddy duddy or whatever you want to call, but that's great. But like, I'm not, I'm not building my marketing platform on somebody potentially using a cuss word that they could, that, that I take a cuss word out and put another word into it. Like, to, like, I'm just not going there, but the shift <laughs> everywhere is what really bothers me. Okay. Because think about it. If I shift everywhere, that means I'm shifting nowhere. Yeah. So exactly. now I'm not shifting at all. So yeah. what do you, this, I mean, it's just, it's just circular logic. It's, it's, it's a marketing team that is taking this to a, just a far extreme. And I just, I just can't, I can't sit by anymore and not talk about it. Like we gotta, we gotta, we gotta hit this, this in our industry and, and people just got to wisen up and, and because the, the people that buy stuff now, it's amazing what's happened in the market. People that buy stuff are really, really smart and they don't talk to salespeople until they're ready to buy something. 
So they go and they absorb websites and they watch demo videos and they do free trials. And then they talk to sales when they want to buy something. So this type of stuff though, like, I I mean, people just got to wisen up that this is, this is just a stretch so far beyond where they needed to go. And marketing has just got to bring it in and be a little more real here. Yeah, the, the the taste I get from Shift Everywhere is whatever you want us to be. Yeah, we'll sell you that. We might not actually have it, but we'll sell yes. it to you. <laughs> yes. I mean, I've actually been in customer meetings with a mark with sales guys that have done that, where they have said the customer presents what they want and they'll take those slides back and they'll mirror them back to the customer with we can solve those problems exactly. And you're like, now sometimes you can't do that. Sometimes you actually need to challenge the customer. Sometimes mm-hmm. you need to tell the customer, I know you think you're being really smart, but the reality is you're not. You need to listen to somebody who's been there before and you need to like understand that I understand what you're trying to do, but what you're trying to do ain't going to work. And if you're going to do this, you're just going to end up in a bad place. So Mm -hmm. sometimes that's just the job. And it's not a pleasant place to be, by the way, all the time. But, you know, it is what it is. I mean, I think you're 100% right. Sometimes the customer needs to hear about different alternative ways to approach something. And they need to be challenged sometimes. And they may not like it. And... But the but if they end up with a better solution, it just comes down to how you explain it, yeah. right? Like, I mean, I've been in some of those meetings where people from engineering were talking, and we're all like, "Oh no, you can't say that! You can't say that in front of a customer! You can't tell them their idea is stupid. That doesn't work. You're not Elon, okay? Maybe if you're Elon, you could do that, but you're not, okay? So you have to you have to bring them on a journey here. You have to help them understand, okay." That's great. We we hear you. We hear that's what you're looking for. But can we share a couple other ideas about how we've solved this problem for others? It might look a little different than where where you're the, the steps you're going through, but I think it'll take you to the same place at the end. And we, and it'll be faster and and you don't have to wait for development for six or twelve months to get features built or whatever. And as long as you bring them along on that journey, it just comes down to how you how you explain it, right? Like we're all in sales and marketing. Okay. Don't let anyone tell you different. We're all in sales and market. You're either selling something or somebody's selling something to you. And yeah. that's yeah. that's the reality of, of everything. Yep, it is. Yeah. So so that's your beef with shift left. You you said you had some other fun quotes from shift left that you that, that Yeah, I had a couple in. that I'm gonna put in a newsletter here, but they're a little they're not as as focused on shift left. And so I was just looking for uh another good example here. Um but it's the other thing that I see is like everybody is is using shift left. Like it's it's being applied to every every company is trying to find a way to tap into shift left. They're trying to figure out how they how they kind of fit into it or how they go. And so so here's another here's another thing. So another pet peeve in, <laughs> with the shift left world before I, I I bring up a couple other of these quotes. But so after shift left came out. A segment of the market said, no, you don't need to shift left. You actually need to shift right into production. And so you need to, you need to, you need to add tooling and technology that provides better monitoring and traceability in production. And then others said, so I heard somebody say shift up and then shift down. I'm like, 
where am I shifting up to now? Now I'm above the the, the process and I'm floating <laughs> above it looking like I don't. And so it's like people are just taking this idea and they're just trying to twist it. In, and then there was shift smart, which I guess shift smart is supposed to mean that I shift left when I need to and right when I need to, which then kind of brings me back to shift everywhere. And, and so that's 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 really the kind of the the crux of this issue, right, is it's been twisted so far that it doesn't really mean anything anymore. It's lost right. its the purity of, and that's why I've started using build security in again whenever I get a chance, yeah. just because yeah. that takes us back to the essence of what Jarzenbeck was doing at DHS with all the same ideas. And so that's that's kind of the challenge, I guess, with, with this whole shift left thing. Yeah, cool. That's interesting. Yeah, so, um, I mean, do you have, when you say build security in, you differentiate that from shift left, um, are there solid principles like you would take for building a network for building security in or an application or like, how do you, how do you instantiate that in the real world? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's the same things that shift left was supposed to lead you to, <laughs> right? I'm just changing the words back again, just to, to get outside of the, the nonsense of all the noise. But yeah, I mean, shift or uh, building security in is really about finding the right process that you can apply to whatever it is that you're building. And so in the world of software, for us, it's about secure development lifecycle, which is how do I, what are the things that I can attach as I'm building something to ensure when I get to the end, I have the maximum amount of assurance that this thing is as secure as I could possibly make it or as secure as I was able to invest into it, right? Because not every application, not every product has the same threat profile. Not every product needs to exist on a street corner in New York City where people can walk up and smash it. Some things can sit inside of your data center environments where the threat landscape that I need to worry about is 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 changed. But when you think about a secure development lifecycle in, uh, you know, from the security perspective, it includes things like you know, security best practices, which is my uh, way of not saying requirements, because people are always so afraid when you say requirements. But if you call it a security best practice, they're like, oh, that's that sounds like it's something we should apply. Yeah, it is. It's actually a requirement <laughs> in disguise. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> From there, it's, it's the discipline that I've spent the last uh, few years really focused in on, and that's threat modeling. And threat modeling is something that applies to anything, right? So threat modeling is this idea of how do we how do we look at something that we're building, analyze it, consider what are the possible challenges that could come up so that we can mitigate those things in a design time activity versus, ah, oh, we just shipped it to production and now we got big problems. Now we got to go fix code and all go through that whole rework process and bring everything back around. Um, so that's, you know, threat modeling is a, is a big part of that secure development life cycle. And then you've got other things like, you know, like secure coding fits into it in a secure development life cycle world. Like we want developers writing secure code, which feeds in training those developers, but also running some of the different tools and technologies to determine if they're creating security bugs that exist. And then there's, you know, testing phases, release phases, there's, there's more pieces that go into it. But, you know, I think when you're building a network, you're still following this, a, a similar but different process, right? Like you don't go into a network just going, well, we're just, we're just guessing what the performance that we need this thing to be. Like you've got requirements driving what you're doing, right? Best practices. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, a lot of the, a lot of the things you've been talking about in the last few minutes, Chris is like, so is really reminding me of, uh, you know, you mentioned testing, I think, um, so my experience with shift left is, is from the quality aspect of it. Um, and in really, to me, what shift left means is evaluate sooner. Don't wait until the end of a release cycle to a release cycle to evaluate. Um, and that goes for quality. It also goes for security. Um, yeah. And and if you think about it, there's a lot of shared DNA there between um, qualification and integration testing and, and security. Because it, if you're continuously testing something, if you're continuously evaluating, you know what the vulnerabilities are almost the moment they roll off the software production line um, and yeah. long before they get into a released product. And I think um, I think that sort of thing where you just where you constantly evaluate um, how, how does it look now compared to yesterday? Um, you know, the tooling that you build to do that from a quality standpoint it is absolutely repurpose, repurposable for security. We like where, where I'm some stuff I'm working on right now. Um, we have a, a, a pretty exhaustive audit, a security audit checklist. And we're just like, we can automate all of this stuff every mm -hmm. single night. We can check like all of these hundreds of things. Um, and we already have the tooling, so let's let's just do it and let's find that vulnerability now instead of two months from now. Yeah, and that's the idea of, of secure DevOps, right? What what you're just describing here is we're going to build software at a high rate of speed. We're going to incorporate these tools that we can automate into a pipeline so that whenever a change is suggested by a developer, it goes through a standard set of tooling and it either goes green or yellow or red at the end of that. Green means we're going to production. Yellow, we got to do something manual to try to because we see there could be something pro like a, you know, some type of problem where we're doing canary uh, release or something to slowly ramp it up or red something completely failed and we got to push it back around. Right. Um, and coming back to what you said at the beginning, like you described the purity of shift left, like what it's supposed to mean, right. Was like kind of considering so that th those things in the beginning was, I think what you said. And like, that's the pure stance. And so, like I said, I'll, you know, coming all the way back around full circle, I don't have any problem with that. That's the right usage of it. The problem is that all these other folks have twisted it to mean right. whatever the heck they want whatever it to mean. Want. Yeah, it's all marketing fluff now. Yeah. And and part of that shift left or part of that idea of building security in has to deal with threat modeling. And I don't think we know enough of that. And by the way, Tom, on your side, on testing, I think that a lot of people think that security testing is outside of their realm, as is threat modeling. These are things that as a network designer or as a coder, they're not really things I need to care about. I don't need to care about threat modeling for my network. I don't need to care about, like, <clears throat> I see people all the time, they'll build a data center fabric, they don't do pen testing on it because it's right. not an application. Like, it's a data center fabric. Why would I do pen testing on it? because you should do pin testing on it. You should like be out there and, and it should be not just at the system level, it should be at the component level. You should be thinking about the threat model for every component you stuff out there. I mean, and, that new network is gonna be pen tested, whether you want it to or not. The question yeah. is, do you, yeah. is it gonna happen before you go full on to production or after when the attackers and nation state folks start checking it out and profiling it and yep. seeing if they can find any weaknesses. And internal threats too, not just external, but even internal threats. People will try to find the way around things intentionally or unintentionally. Oh, the computer won't let me do that. So I'll find a way to do it. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that may not be good for your security.
Yeah. No, both an inside outside approach there at the end of the cycle is good. And, and threat modeling is something that can apply to network architecture and design hundred percent. Like one of the big talks I did this year on the conference scene was uh, zero trust threat modeling. So I took this idea of zero trust architectures, which I knew almost nothing about when I started, but I just said, this is an interesting fusion topic of taking threat, this process threat modeling that I know very well and applying it to zero trust, which I've only seen the marketing blips on. And so I went through and read the NIST documents and the CISA maturity model for zero trust and uh, kind of tore all those things apart. And then I built a giant threat model of, of the zero trust reference architecture because I just wanted to see what what were the challenges there. And, and it turns out just like with anything, there are certain threats that are applicable even in a zero trust environment. And, but, but going through that process is something that'll be very powerful. And we need more people to do that to the network architectures they're building, the zero trust architectures, the data center fabrics and networks and, and whatnot that you're building. Like apply this process because it really will help you to find problems and fix them early. Yep. And, and, you know, not just, not just in design, but also in protocols and open source and the software you're using, we don't threat model any of that stuff. We don't pen test it. We don't, we just say, oh, does it work? Great. I'm done. We don't do fuzz testing. We do nothing most of the time. <clears throat> what's the, uh, what's, what's the rule? It has to work. But yes. I don't think anywhere in that RFC is it must be secure. I, I don't think no, it's in the it's list. Not, no, RFC 1911 <laughs> or 1912 does not have. None of the 11 networking rules or 12 rules of networking have anything about security in them at all. Yeah, it's from a much earlier time, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. A... It is. Well, I mean, and is that true? I mean, is that part of our problem? We didn't design security into some of these protocols from day one because we didn't think we needed it. So here we are 20 years on trying to bolt security onto everything. And some of this stuff just wasn't designed to be securable like BGP. Like, yeah, as I once said in a memorable email, securing BGP is often like signing your doorknob and you somehow think you've improved your lock. Like, no, you actually haven't. <laughs> Sorry, but <laughs> you actually haven't. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to kind of unpack and think more about though. The idea that if we could, well, if there were three, then there are three seats in a DeLorean. No, there's only two. So one of y'all is going to have to sit on the other's lap, but if we got into a DeLorean <laughs> and traveled back to some of those IETF early meetings where they were creating these standards and stuff, and we could have had an impact for security, I mean, I don't know that anybody would have cared, even if we came in with a passionate plea for, you don't understand the future of what's going to happen with the internet. I just don't feel like 20 years ago, I mean, I was pretty early in my career at that point, but people just didn't, they didn't have the vision of, and, and the foresight to see what was going to happen and how nobody, I mean, even 20 years ago, nation state actors were still something that we weren't they weren't yeah. on our threat model. Yeah, we just weren't even thinking model. about if you build a network and a data center, uh, other nations around the world other than yours are going to be trying to get access to it, either by sending people to work there or by attacking it over the internet. It just wasn't in the threat model 20 years ago. Yeah. And, and that's something to note about threat models, right? Is they change over time. Threats change. And we don't keep up with the threats changing. And this is one of those things, again, where shift left 
you know, this idea of build security in from the beginning and people calling it shift left and then using shift all over the place and messing up the marketing. That's something that the person who did shift left in the first place wasn't anticipating. They were trying to build something useful and it's turned out to be like, yeah, well, now we got to go back and change the terms because frankly, that doesn't mean anything anymore. It's like I've been fighting the battle over routers versus switches for 20 years and I'm never going to win, but I don't, <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> Wait, is there a difference? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's crazy. Uh, when, did, when did we go from routers? Routers actually route packets and switches switch packets to routers have big buffers and switches have little buffers. And that's the only difference. That's kind of a weird thing. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I don't know. So um, yeah, that's interesting. We we probably need to pay more attention to security and to threat modeling in the networking world. Um, do you know of any resources though, Chris, that are out there for network people on security? I mean, it's kind of a barren desert. It feels like. Yeah, I mean, I think this uh, this talk and this uh, that I, and I've turned into a blog post on on uh, threat modeling zero trust is something that would be, you know, maybe a little bit a little bit of a connection point uh, into the world of networking for folks to at least get a grasp. And the, the nice thing about threat modeling is it is pretty simple. And so one of my friends is kind of the the godfather of threat modeling. His name's Adam Shostak, and he was very uh, he, he was the the person leading the charge at Microsoft back in the early days. And so he's boiled threat modeling down into four simple questions. So the first question that you could apply this to threat model anything. Okay, so what what uh, what are we working on? Is the first question. So we could so what is our scope? You know, um, what could go wrong? So what are all the potential things that could, you know, once we have an idea what the scope is, what are the potential things that could break or that could could um, cause us problems? The third question is, what are we going to do about it? So meaning, how are we going to mitigate these things? You know, are there some things that we identified that we think we don't have to fix because they're just really not that there's not not a great chance it's going to happen. Whereas there's other things that are more important that we have to that, that are definitely going to be a problem if we launch with this thing. And then the fourth question is, did we do a good enough job? So applying that retrospective step. But I mean, that is that is the essence of threat modeling right there. Like I can't boil it down any any simpler than that. But the beautiful thing is you can apply that to anything. You know, you can, can you, apply it to the TSA as you go through the security line. Now, one quick point of reference. Don't share the results with them when you get to the other side. They don't appreciate it. They do not have a sense of humor about threat modeling. Okay. It will be, you'll have a very uncomfortable conversation in a room in the back after you discuss the results of the threat model. So, Tom, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, that's okay. Could you just review the four points one more time? Sure. Sure. Um, so the question, this is, and you can, you can Google this Adam Shostak's four, uh, four question framework for threat modeling is, um, and he, we, we got him to post it in a GitHub repo because all of us that are kind of serious about threat modeling have been, uh, pointing to it, using it, referring to it. We're like, dude, you got to put this in a GitHub repo. So like, we have a source. We give you, we can, we can give you credit whenever we talk yeah. about it. Right. Um, so that, yeah, the first question is what are we working on? The second question is what could go wrong? The third question is, what are we going to do about it? And the fourth question is, do we go, do a good enough job? So awesome. That, 
That first question, I guess a question about that question, is that a goal orientation? Would you say that is not just what we're working on, but what are we trying to accomplish? Because I think that is something that 99% of the engineers in the world, they get blinders on about what they're trying to solve. They're trying to solve problem A and they don't realize they're actually trying to solve a sub-problem of the larger problem. Yeah, I mean... In in its simplest form, what are we working on is really a scoping question in in the okay. four question framework. Okay. The, it's and, and the reason is the larger the scope of a threat model, the more difficult it is to get actionable results out of it. Because if right. if we go in and say, okay, we're going to threat model your entire data center. Oh well, there's 714 routers and five switches and uh you know they, <laughs> that was for russ's benefit there but the point He's is itching. like if we have this if we have this massively complex thing we're trying to threat model then we're going to get bogged down in the details we're never going to get anywhere so what are we working on is it's also an encouragement for us to say how can we narrow the scope so right. if you come to me and you throw a network architecture diagram in front of me with a thousand items on it i'm going to say what's the most crucial point of this thing and let's draw a little circle around that. Let's threat model that. Show me a blow, blow that little spot here that you said is the most crucial spot. Let's blow them. Maybe it's where all the, you know, peering connections come in. I don't know what it is, but like, let's focus on that first. And let's, it's, it's, how do we take smaller bites? How do we, how do we get, because we want to ultimately have something we can take action upon. And if we get bogged down in a 12 month project to threat model this thing, there's no action coming out of it. We're not getting any results from that. Right. Right. Okay. So it's a scoping question, which, which, by the way, is still a tell us. It's still a, a question about purpose or what am I trying to accomplish? Right. Yes. You can, yeah. you can scope things by worrying about what is it I'm trying to accomplish. I mean, I always relate back to this time I was troubleshooting this ISIS problem in some large network, and we were doing something on a router, and it was not doing the DNS queries correctly. So, like you know, it wasn't it wasn't spitting out the domain names when you do a trace route or whatever. And this person was saying, "I wonder why that." And they started chasing off this DNS problem, and I'm like, "Stop! Write that down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a good problem to solve tomorrow. Today, we are solving." <laughs> <laughs> why ISIS is not converging correctly in this network, <laughs> you know. The, the, I, I, the scoping um, part of this, though, in thinking about my own experience with threat models, um, looking back on it, I didn't I, I was I was being guided by a security team. So I didn't like we didn't use these four questions, but we I can see these elements in the work that we did. Um, but uh, we I definitely did scope down what we were working on. And we, we definitely got really good results. Like I'm, I'm a hundred percent certain that after we finished the, the system we were building was um, not just more secure. It was actually more reliably like operational, reliable, operationally reliable, which is a pretty common outcome. But, um, I, the idea of scoping, like if you have a purpose to build something and if you were to do that and then have the scoping conversation and, and have the mismatch. That would tell you some interesting things. If it was like, here's the thing we're building, but we can only focus on this this sub part of it right now. I think that I don't know. I think that would be pretty revealing about um, you know what your priorities are and what you're trying to secure and things like that. Yeah. What, what do you think, Chris? Yeah, definitely, I agree. I mean, part of my job when I come in to help people threat model is to ask those questions like that to look at because I mean I've seen enough 
threat models. I've been around security long enough. You show me a high level picture of your of your architecture. I'm going to ask the question, but I have a really good hunch as far as what I think are the most crucial pieces of the architecture. And so I, the way I approach it is just to help people. I take people on a journey, right? Like, like let's, I want them to come to the conclusion. Like I'm asking, I'm using the Socratic method to just get them because I want them to say what the answer is. Like, I know the answer, but it doesn't help you for right. me to shout it out. It helps it when you go, oh, wow, now I see it. I'm like, oh, excellent. That's great. I'm glad that was your conclusion. You know, even though I've been <laughs> asking questions to try to lead you in that direction. And, and then that, but that's a teaching method, right? Like, and, and it yeah. just, it shows that threat modeling is really about the people. And listen, I'm starting a company to build a platform to help people threat model. And I'm telling you, threat modeling is about the people. Like there is no AI that's going to threat model for you. I'm sorry if there's you know eight people that love AI that listen here, but AI is not the answer. It's not going to be your solution. And there is not a way to automate the, the human out of the threat model because it's the human brain that's got all the power in it right now. And once you can give me an AI rendition of Russ that I can ask questions that'll give me the answer about networking problems. Once we have that level, okay, then you can threat model with an AI. But for now you need the Toms of the world in that meeting with the security team, because once again, when I'm the security team, I'm working with you, Tom, I don't have the domain knowledge and expertise that you do, but I, I can ask questions. And I like to say, when I do threat models with people, I probably half the time I know, I think I know the answer to the question, the other half I don't. I just throw things out just to see if it sticks because I can, I'm trying to tap into your domain expertise because you'll look at that. Sometimes you might be like, you look at me like, that's kind of a dumb question. You don't say it, but you look at me and I know, I know I just <laughs> threw one out there that, but once again, I'm trying to get you to unlock your domain expertise. And I'm trying to channel it into these, right. This thinking about how is this thing, how, how is somebody going to try to break this thing that, that you've designed and that you've built. So I'm, I'm actually very worried about the whole idea of AI and security from a different angle than many other people are worried about it, which is that my experience with automation is that automation makes things more secure in some ways and more fragile in others. That, you know, you need a human in the loop because once the attacker, who is a human, by the way, figures out that if they do X every time, it will break your system. They don't need to understand how the system works. They just need to understand the consistency. And even AIs are going to be consistent in their response patterns enough that a human will be able to outthink the AI, regardless of how smart the AI is. You're never going to be able to think around it. Um, and not just because, because they're smarter, but because like humans do random things. And that's the problem. Humans just do random things like, okay, I'm going to build my house with, with absolutely the best door locks you can get in the world. And then they break a window. Well, that was useful. Or, you know, if you're really smart and you want to break into a house and you're in a house that's not a brick house, you just take a drill and a sawzall and you don't care about the doors and the windows because honestly, sheetrock and, and, and siding are really easy to cut through with the six inch sawzall blade. Don't tell anybody I said that, but that's, but that's the reality, <laughs> right? So you keep mm -hmm. building up all this. I'm going to take all my windows and I'm going to put really smart alarms on them. And somebody still wants to get in your house. They're just going to avoid the windows because they're going to think around the boxes you've built. And I worry that AI is leading us down this path of, like you said before, people aren't thinking as much. They're more following the pattern that's been set over and over and over again. And that's actually a very brittle, fragile way to do things. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, when I think about AI, AI is something to enable higher levels of productivity with both developers and security people. This idea that an AI is going to take over your job, no way. I'm sorry. A, A generative AI, a large language model, can only parrot back out what's been fed into it. It's not thinking. It's not sitting there drawing conclusions between different things. It's, it's a Chinese it's, room is what it is. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah, it's that. And you probably should explain that if you're going to use that example, right? <laughs> I just happened to read that recently, right? It was the, and uh, you, if you know it, go ahead and explain it, please, because I'll probably butcher it. Yeah, so, so when Turing came out with his imitation game, a philosopher said the problem with the imitation game proving that there is intelligence is that I can build a room and put a person in it who does not like Chinese. You can pick any language you want to. They just pick Chinese for whatever reason. And I can hand them things in Chinese. And if they have a good enough dictionary, they will spit out the other language that you want them to, English, French, German, whatever it is, in a nearly perfect translation. Because it's just a symbol. They're just symbols. And I've reduced everything to symbols. And that doesn't prove that the person sitting in the room understands Chinese, German, French, English, whatever it is. It just proves they have a really good dictionary. That's all it really proves. So all that the imitation game does is, is it proves that the computer has a really good dictionary. Well, guess what? LLMs, they are really good dictionaries. That's what they are. Mm they they are not thinking they are just dictionaries and yeah and if you guys haven't seen um owasp has a new top 10 list for large language models and it's fascinating oh. because there's a whole collection of new attacks that we just never really thought about before there's an there's an llm attack listed there poisoning yeah we never yeah. had to dealt with deal with poisoning before poisoning yeah. being somebody poisons the training model and it gets fed into the LLM and then the LLM spits out an answer based on how it was trained that somehow gives the attacker an advantage yeah. that they weren't supposed to have. Like there's a whole new world now that we're unlocking. But like I said, like it's this is a way for developer. This is going to make the best developers 20 percent more productive, because yeah. like when you think about how a developer works, when they go to create a new code file, they don't need to create all the scaffolding that goes with it, all the the headers and things like that that are standard things. Like we should have an AI that knows what the scaffolding looks like for a Ruby uh, program. And it just drops it in correctly for them. Then they can go do the magic that's just the important parts, the things where that require their knowledge and expertise to be able to make the the things work inside of it. Uh, but I think the same thing's going to be true for security. It's going to be how do we how do we make SOC analysts or not even NOC analysts? How do we make them 10 or 20 or 30 percent more effective? How can the AI gather all the things they need and even try to anticipate what they might need to understand about a ticket? to give them information that they would normally have gone and run commands to collect data about on their own. Now that's a place where I see it having a a bigger impact, but I'm not, I'm not somebody who's sitting back going, I'm not shaking in my boots that we're somehow going to be replaced by AI. uh, Probably not even in my lifetime. Yeah. And I've always thought by the way, well, first of all, back to your attack, there are now bots that poison the, um, that poison the social media systems that try to figure out what you like and don't like that build yeah. your feed, right? So there are actually bots out there that will go out and poison those so that they 
cause things to show up. And we've had this in search engine optimization for years. All SEO really is, is it's an attack against the SE, against the search engine. That's yeah. all it really is, right? You're, you're just playing games with keywords and stuff to fake the search engine out. So Russ just, just dropping there. bombs on a whole industry <laughs> right here. <laughs> I mean, really, that's pretty much what it is. It's almost an attack against the search engine. And it's like cat and mouse, right? But I have worked on proposed self-healing systems, as they were called, where what the AI was supposed to do was it was supposed to just watch every time somebody takes a case out of the queue, it watches what they do. And it says they went and gathered these five outputs. And now I can look at this problem description and figure out based on like a large language model that I need to go gather those five outputs for this person before they show up. That would be so fantastic from a troubleshooting perspective to open a ticket and have like a lot of like 80% of the show commands gathered and pings and trace routes and blah da dee da all gathered for you or whatever it might be, you know, all gathered for you. Oh, well, look, I need to run this particular CI to make that work. And oh, when that doesn't work, then I need to do look here in the code to find that. And like, just find the, you know, how much time do I spend in code looking up error messages so I can figure out where that error message was printed? Like that's, that's kind of dumb. Like something could be doing that for me. Yeah. I mean, that's my, that's my 20, 30% optimization. Like yeah. I think, I think you could save that amount of time in mm -hmm. by having the, a, the, the tooling generate that type of data for you. So that when yeah. I get to the ticket, boom, 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 my windows are set. Okay. I've got the data. I can now try to make a decision. I can do that higher order processing piece yeah. that the AI can't magnify or can't even, it can't even attempt to do that because I have to connect things that I have never been connected before. And it may be that I'm doing that from standard sets of output, but your brain's still connecting something and going, oh, I see a pattern here yeah. that no one's ever documented before. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I actually don't have any more questions. Well, I do have questions, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> we've kind of, we've kind of been, we've kind of beat the whole shift left to death and we're kind of moving into other things. So maybe we should wrap it up and, schedule another call for other topics at some point with Chris because Chris is always fascinating to have around and talk about security stuff and we don't talk about security nearly enough in our world so um, I don't know anything else to add Tom no Ask. this has been great been great anything from your end Chris other than stop using shift left <laughs> yeah just a <laughs> quick summary stop using shift left um, Russ blew up the SEO market <laughs> Um, routers are switches. <laughs> what else did I learn in this conversation? I'm never getting invited back again. Probably what I also learned. Uh, but let's have I me, mean, hey, listen, you know, life is, we're, we're supposed to have fun here. That's, That's what we're right. doing. So That's right. I always appreciate the chance to catch up with you guys. And just, yeah. um, these are fascinating conversations to, to have as we've, we've stretched a lot of boundaries that we weren't even really planning to cover, but yeah, no, that's, that's what's fun about it. You yeah, know? that's right. That's right. Okay. So Tom, where can people reach you if they want to? Or catch up I am on or whatever. I'm on LinkedIn, so that'd You're be the best LinkedIn, place. And that's it. That's all he is that's anymore. Yeah. All right, Chris, you have your own podcast. You have a blog post. You have blah blah blah. Lots of things. What's going on? Yeah, best place for folks to reach me is on LinkedIn as well. Um, that's where I, I post a lot of stuff. I'm doing a newsletter now called Reasonable Application Security. 
where I actually wrote about uh, this whole shift left thing uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, but yeah, I do a bunch of podcasts, AppSec podcast and security table, and I even do a threat modeling podcast now. So I'm okay. spending a lot of time making podcasts, but I have fun like you guys do. So if you people follow you on LinkedIn, they'll, they'll see all that. That's the best place to see. I see. I, sh I share everything through LinkedIn. All right, cool. Awesome. Okay. And I'm Russ White. You can always find me here at the Hedge or O11.tech on LinkedIn. I do log into Twitter, me, X every now and again just to see what's going on there. Although, I don't know, sometimes it's very painful. But anyway, I do try to keep up a little bit. And um, I'm pretty easy to find. But anyway, uh, we know that your attention is important in this crazy world. There's a lot to listen to. There's a lot, to pay, a lot going on. So we thank you for your time listening to this episode of The Hedge. And uh, we'll hope to catch you next time. Bye.